Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. This week and next week's episodes are going to operate as a sort of two-parter. I'm still covering individual tree species, but they'll share a common theme. I teased this a few weeks ago with the Sitka spruce, but now it's finally time to talk about the world's biggest trees. I'm starting off this week with the tallest tree in the world, which is the Coast Redwood. Redwoods are just so incredible. The very title of this podcast is My Favorite Trees, and each episode I say how each tree is one of my favorite trees, but at the end of the day, I do have absolute favorite trees. In fact, I have a personal top three ranking. I don't want to spoil all three for you just yet, but number three is the Redwood. I just really love these trees. Being in a redwood forest is a truly surreal experience. And if I don't stop myself, I'm just going to keep gushing about this tree. So let's learn its story and how it gets to be so tall. honestly don't really know where to start. It's just, it's just so tall. Well, how tall is it? So the very tallest redwood, the tallest living tree, is named Hyperion, and it stands at 380 feet tall, around 115 meters. As I've mentioned, I went to school at Oklahoma State University in the small town of Stillwater, Oklahoma. The two tallest buildings in town were these two dorms called Kerr and Drummond Halls, Kerr and Drummond were 12 stories tall, 146 feet tall each. Miles away, as you were approaching town, you could see these two towers jutting up from the plains. And if you stack them on top of each other, the tallest redwood would still be 90 feet taller. Now, one giant in a forest of like kind may not stick out, but that doesn't make it any less massive. And that's just the tallest tree today. Back in the 1800s, loggers reportedly harvested redwood trees over 400 feet tall. Now, how does a tree that tall work exactly? Remember that the stem exists not just to hold the tree up, but to move water and nutrients up and down the tree. I touched on this briefly in my first episode about how trees work, but this is a great opportunity to explain this process in a little more detail. Science warning here for... Those of you who don't like science, but this will just take a minute. The plumbing of a tree is composed of tissues known as xylem. Xylem cells are dead. They simply exist as pipes to move water. Well, less like pipes and more like a straw. Water tends to move into places where there is less water. Things of high concentration move to areas of low concentration. This is how roots first absorb water from the soil. It's why if you put a straw into your drink, a little bit of water will flow into the bottom of your straw. Water also likes to climb. The molecules are exceptionally good at sticking to surfaces, but also sticking to each other. That's why water droplets tend to form bubbles when placed on a surface rather than automatically flattening out. This allows the water to move up the tree to a small extent. But how do you get your drink through the straw and up to your mouth? For that, you need suction. The suction for the tree happens in the transpiration, that's the exhale of the tree when leaves release oxygen and water vapor. 
When that water vapor leaves the tree, it creates a pressure difference that allows the water at the bottom of the tree to move up the straw and get distributed to the upper parts of the tree. The only problem is that gravity is still a force that tries to pull the water back down, and the higher up you go, the stronger gravity will try to pull it back down. To get to the top of a 300-foot tree, water would typically need to be under immense pressure. But because water molecules are so good at sticking to each other, they don't need quite as much pressure. Experimentally, moving water that high up requires around 30 times the normal atmospheric pressure that we experience just walking around. It's almost the equivalent pressure that the world's deepest human diver experienced when they swam over a thousand feet below sea level. Trees just continue to amaze me. There's no pumping mechanism to move the water. It's literally just physics. It's built in such a way to take advantage of the natural laws of science. Science lecture aside, redwoods also need a lot of water to continuously be moved up the tree. And they do this by physically intercepting a ton of fog and having that drip down to the soil. Because of this, their native range is extremely limited to a narrow strip along the California coast, just peeking up into southern Oregon. This strip is 450 miles long, but rarely more than 40 miles wide. You go too far inland and there just isn't enough moisture or the same kind of soil. It is possible for redwoods to grow and be grown outside of that range, but it's a lot harder for them to reach those same gargantuan heights. Of that range, I would say the highest concentrations of redwoods are found in the Del Norte and Humboldt counties in Northern California. There's some terrific national and state parks in those areas that I'll talk about more later in this episode. But let's move on to the parts of the tree. Redwoods are evergreen, meaning they have green leaves that persist year-round. These leaves do fall eventually, but they stick around for multiple growing seasons rather than just one. And when these leaves are shed, rather than dropping individual leaves, the redwood drops entire branches, which is a little scary considering how high up they drop from. The leaves themselves are dimorphic, which means they have two different shapes. If you listen to the Baobab episode, you may recall that that tree has two leaf shapes depending on how old the tree is. Redwoods have two different leaf shapes depending on what part of the tree the leaf is growing on. For most of the branches that make up the shady canopy, the leaves are linear. Uh, that would be like a flattened needle shape similar to that of fir trees, like most Christmas trees. But on the branches that bear the fertile cones, they are called scale-like, meaning they overlap each other like scales on a reptile and don't really stick out from the tree as much. Speaking of cones, do you think you could guess how big a redwood's cones are, considering these are the tallest trees on Earth? If you guessed big, you're wrong. These cones are tiny, about half the size of my thumb, which I think is a relatively average-sized thumb, so maybe around an inch or two and a half centimeters long, and only a few millimeters wide. This tree is the poster child for the From Humble Beginnings story. And the seeds that come out of these cones are just specks. It would take 120,000 redwood seeds to weigh a single pound. Let's talk about the bark. It is a reddish-brown color for the most part. And on a mature tree, it is thick. Like a foot thick. If I bored a hole into the tree and reached my arm in, I would be elbow deep before I reached a part of the tree that wasn't just bark. 
And this is a great feature of the tree in regards to protection. Fire just cannot get through it. Fire can kill younger redwood shoots, though, but it also tends to kill most of the rest of the undergrowth, which just clears more space for new redwoods to germinate. Because, you know what? It's free real estate. Once the tree matures, the wood itself beneath the bark is also resistant to fire, as well as fungus and insects. The Latin name for the redwood is Sequoia sempervirens. Sequoia is so named in honor of the man who invented the Cherokee writing system, and sempervirens is from the Latin for everlasting. This brings up the question, can a redwood live forever? In most tree species, after a certain age, the structure will begin to weaken on its own, leading to disease and decay. Scientific data has indicated that these trees can live to be at least 2,000 years old, with some published records that aren't backed with concrete data having claimed that they could live to be 5,000 years old. What typically kills these ancient trees isn't disease or decay, but strong winds. You get to be so tall that you catch all these intense winds, and at some point it's just too much to bear, and you topple over. As for the redwoods' relatives, there really aren't that many close ones. Fossil records indicate that there may have been as many as 40 different species of redwood that spanned across the northern hemisphere during the Cretaceous and Tertiary periods, but this is all that's left of that prehistoric sequoia genus. There are two trees with close relation, though, and that's the giant sequoia, which are found in scattered groves across the Sierra Nevadas in eastern California, and the dawn redwood, which is native to China. Some theories actually suggest that the coast redwood is actually a hybridized offspring of the two, from back when their ranges may have overlapped. These three trees used to be in their own family along with the bald cypresses in the Gulf State swamps. Nowadays, they are all placed in their own subfamily within the larger cypress family, Cupressaceae, along with cypresses, junipers, and a bunch of cedar-like trees that aren't true cedars, like incense cedars, red cedars, and white cedars. But let's go back now to those national and state parks and talk about the history that led up to protecting these incredible trees. The coast redwood has served many purposes throughout human history. Native peoples used the wood for building houses and canoes and wove the fibers into baskets. It was used as dyes as well as for medicinal purposes and was featured in the stories of various tribes in the region. It is said that once upon a time all plants and animals were people. The first redwoods were village elders that coyote transformed into tall trees so they could watch over their people and he stained them red as a reminder of the blood that we all share, and the connection that every living thing holds. When western settlers made their way to the coast, California became a hotspot for gold, and with that influx of people, redwoods became a highly desirable resource for necessary building material. But how do you physically cut down something so big? The trunks are so wide and the trees so high up that when it falls on bare ground, the wood simply shatters and renders it useless. As for getting through the trunk, wedges were cut out of the base in the direction that they wanted the trees to fall. And when you would finally get it to topple over, there needed to be a natural cushion laid out with soft material so the tree wouldn't shatter after falling from such a great height. 
These trees were used to make homes for settlers as well as railroad ties and any other thing that was useful for the gold rush. Occasionally, there'd be trees whose bases are hollowed out due to fire, and these spaces were used as natural livestock pens. Inside the tree! The fire-resistant lumber actually proved to be incredibly useful around the turn of the century. In 1906, San Francisco suffered an 8.3 magnitude earthquake, which caused a great fire to blaze in the city. Almost five square miles were destroyed in the fire, but historians say it could have been worse. One reason they were able to contain the fire was because its movement slowed down drastically when it reached a section of town that was primarily built with redwood lumber. Because this tree's wood is so resistant to fire, it gave the people enough time to get the fire under control. Lives were saved because we used this wood. But not long after, conservationists realized that we were using too much of the wood. Redwood forests are a rare piece of nature that we could have destroyed completely if protections weren't put into place. In 1918, we saw the foundation of the Save the Redwoods League, a group that protects ancient redwoods by buying up land containing these forests. They also donate to research efforts that work towards accelerating forest regeneration and lobby for increased conservation efforts. They bought up what land they could over the next decade, and in 1927, a committee successfully campaigned for the creation of the California State Parks System to protect rare wild areas like ancient redwood and giant sequoia forests. This wasn't the first time we saw a state protecting land like this. Yosemite Valley was protected by the state 65 years earlier. But this established a unified system to manage parks across the state. And we can see today how these efforts rippled across the country. Every state park system that conserves beautiful wild sections of the United States can thank those who fought to protect rugged sections of California like Yosemite Valley and the Redwood Forests. The Redwood Forests specifically were valued enough to be established as a national park in 1968 and expanded in 1978. Loggers were, of course, not happy about these decisions, but scientists have come to realize how important it is to protect whole ecosystems rather than pieces of ecosystem. But though 100,000 acres of old-growth redwood forest was now protected, it was kind of chopped up between dozens of different state parks and preserves, with the national park being federally managed separately on top of that. So in 1994, NPS and the California Department of Parks and Recreation decided that the best management strategy was to jointly run the national park and four state parks that primarily existed for old-growth redwood protection. After 100 years of activity, the Save the Redwoods League has ultimately protected over 200,000 acres of redwood forest, which is magnificent, but damage had already been done before they stepped in. Old-growth redwood forest was said to once span an area larger than the state of Delaware, but now less than 5% of that old-growth forest remains. Luckily, most of that amount is in the hands of parks, preserves, and protection groups. The species is classified as endangered because of the amount that remains, but thanks to these efforts, it's unlikely this tree is going anywhere anytime soon. On top of protecting old-growth areas, new redwood forests are also being grown on private land because it is still a terrific source of lumber. The fire and rot resistance makes it a great exterior product for house siding, fencing, and shingles, and that beautiful redwood is highly prized for specialty products. It also grows incredibly fast, faster than most other American timber species. On top of products, redwoods are ornamentally planted around the world. As you can imagine, they don't get quite as massive as they do in their native range. 
I saw a dawn redwood, which is the Chinese species in the genus Metasequoia, growing in an arboretum in Lawrence, Kansas. It honestly looked pretty sad. Like, it's cool that folks in this part of the world could see such an incredible species, but I don't think this tree was too happy with the environment it was placed in. Redwoods are also commonly grown as bonsai, which is a fascinating Japanese art that grows miniature versions of trees to scale. I've never tried it before, but maybe I will someday. I've never been very good at actually growing plants in general, and I feel like this is advanced plant growing, so I don't know if I'm quite ready for it. I also love the deep irony of taking the world's tallest tree and growing it in such a way that it fits on a side table. Redwood forests themselves have been used as filming locations for sci-fi blockbusters like Star Wars Return of the Jedi and Jurassic Park The Lost World. These trees just make us feel like we have stepped onto another planet or into an entirely different time period. I was first told about the redwoods in my intro to forestry course in college. My professor told us this story about how after he graduated high school in, I think, Virginia, he and his buddy hitchhiked their way across the country to go and see the redwoods. And that experience was an event that helped define who he became as an adult. He made the entire class swear an oath that we would each make a pilgrimage to the Northern California coast and see the old growth redwoods. In May of 2019, I fulfilled my oath. I was in the middle of driving from Kansas to Washington to start my first park job, and I created this two-week-long route that took me through the southwest and up the west coast. At the beginning of the second week, I drove into Redwoods National and State Parks. I knew how tall they were already, but I still wasn't prepared to see these giants in person. They really are just so tall! It's quite frankly dangerous driving through these parks simply because I'm so distracted by the scenery. And despite driving for 6 hours that day to get there, I still managed to hike 13 miles before getting to my campsite that night. It was not just incredible to be there, but also to have fulfilled this pilgrimage oath that I had sworn years before. I love the redwoods more than most other trees because they embody one of the main reasons why I love trees so much in the first place. I like to feel small. I like the feeling of existing in a world so massive and expansive, and I find it both relieving and painful that human lives are not long enough to experience every bit of it. Humans have this habit of making it seem like the world is ours to dominate. We cannot continue to think of ourselves as masters or conquerors, but stewards. The land takes care of us if we first take care of it. If we do not do it this justice, it cannot support us. These living giants humble us. They remind us that this world is bigger than us, and it's something worth respecting. And as much as any of you may already believe that in your heart, it doesn't truly hit you until you are standing among the giants. So if any of you have yet to visit the Redwoods, I want you to make the same pledge that I did years ago right now. Raise your right hand, as long as you aren't driving. And this is less awkward if you actually do this with me, so please. Now, repeat after me. I, state your name, do solemnly swear to visit the Redwoods. to travel to the California coast and stand among the giants 
and I swear to learn from the Redwoods. To be humbled and awed by nature. And I will do this thing, or so help me Thomas. Well, gee dang, you guys. What are you still doing here? Go see the tallest trees in the world. You've sworn an oath to do it, and they're out there waiting for you. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you have the time, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their stuff on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Bandcamp. Wherever good music exists, they are there. My cover art is by Brittany Burnett. Find her incredible photography on Instagram at BoomerangBrit. Find me on Twitter at MyFavoriteTrees and get updates on future episodes and extra goodies. If you'd like to thank me back, you can do so by donating to your favorite sustainable organization, some of which are listed on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug. (laughs) ¶¶